Welcome to Holistic Wisdom Awakening, your inner healer. Today, I have an amazingly special guest, Dr. Sabine Hazan. Dr. Sabine Hazan is a physician. She's a CEO of Progenobiome and Ventura Clinical Trials. She has over 20 years of experience leading clinical trials for cutting edge research on various medical issues and has done over 300 clinical trials for pharmaceutical company. Since March of 2020, she has been at the forefront of COVID-19 research, leading ongoing FDA approved clinical trials for treatment and prophylaxis of hydroxychloroquine, zithromycin, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and ivermectin. And the one thing I didn't know is Dr. Sabine Hazan is the one who originally created and patented the entire combination I just talked about back in March of 2020. She's mastering the familial fecal transplant showing hope for kids with autism. I'm so excited. <laughs> I just think that in the last two years, our world has absolutely gone mad by splitting into two camps. Medicine became politicized. Uh, I come from background of medicine myself as a clinical pharmacist, uh, board certified in functional medicine. I cannot wait to have this incredible, insightful conversation with somebody who is sticking to the middle. I think we need more people in the middle because uh, there's too much split. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's great. It's an honor. Yeah. So first I want to start with how today's topic, by the way, is bifidobacter and the survival of species. And I want to start talking about bifido. And this is not how initially you started, right? Because you initially started with the C. diff, the clostridium. Yes, and I want yes. to know how it brought you into the bifido. And we'll have this amazing conversation of why it is so important. Well, if you look at my background, I mean, I was I, I finished fellowship at University of Florida with GI. And I, was start, I started my fellowship at, at one year of research, clinical research, where I was working with pharmaceutical companies already um, doing studies on biologics and PPIs. And those were, that was my beginning, right? And over the years, you know, my, my field where I was 90% GI and 10% research became 90% research and 10% GI, mostly because I wasn't satisfied of my field in, in GI, where we were just scoping, scoping and putting patients on medications after medications. And I wanted a cure for these Crohn's patients, right? I, I was, you know, in a way, I, I didn't want to keep seeing them for the medications refills. I wanted them to have a life and a quality of life. And I felt like I needed to step in more into the clinical trial route if I was going to help these kids better than just writing the prescriptions. And when I went into the clinical trials, I started noticing, well, we're giving antibiotics for everything. And then we went from antibiotics with everything to uh, biologics for everything. And pharmaceutical companies are copycatters, right? They're like one company is doing PPI, proton pump inhibitors, another one is doing it, another one, another one. And so now we have like five different PPIs on the market, or we have five different kinds of biologics, right? So we're in the biologic world right now where, you know, Crohn's disease, Parkinson's, I mean, not Parkinson's, but Crohn's disease, uh, psoriasis, psoriasis, arthritis, mm -hmm. you know, are all being treated with these biologics, right? And, and I don't think people understand what biologics are because I'm in the clinical trial world. I get to see 
you know, and I've done over 300 clinical trials. So I get to see these protocols. I get to see the investigative brochure. I get to see the compounds, um, which is basically allows me to give patients an informed consent, right? And really what started for me was C. diff because C. diff was the bug that I was always doing clinical trials. My colleagues like Dr. Neil Stolman um, was doing fecal transplant to playing with poop and putting it in a patient and, and improving that patient. And I kept doing clinical trials because it was just cleaner. And I was just following a recipe by the pharmaceutical company essentially to, to just put my patient on the protocol and follow the protocol. When clinical trials were, were not working for patients with C. diff, I had to resort to, to fecal transplant. And that's when, you know, I, I always remember I, I called Neil, it was a long time ago. And I remember, first of all, Neil and I go back to, he was senior fellowship than I was. He was like my senior and I was, you know, uh, a newbie in the fellowship. And he was like, oh my God, this guy is almost going to be an attending, right? And he, he saw me at a poster one time where I was presenting data on visceral hyperalgesia. And he said, come with me, let's go see the posters. And he showed me a poster and he said, see this, the future is in sh.t. And I said, please don't get me into that field because I went into GI, but I like my colons clean. Please don't get me into this field. They call, literally, they call me Gucci girl in the lab because if it wasn't, if my colons were not pristine, I would be sorry, the prep is inadequate, go back, right? Well, I've gotten over this now. So I remember uh, years and years ago, I called him and I said, I have this doctor, he's not improving. He has C. diff, clinical trials not working. All the medications that are available are not working. He's dying. How do I do fecal transplant? I'm gonna have to do fecal transplant, right? And literally for me to do it was like a big deal because that was not my forte. <laughs> that was not my, you know, I'm a sterile, I come from a sterile environment, right? The fact that I'm playing with this now is just, you know, I've learned that the sterile environment is not necessarily the right thing and probably explained some of my allergies as a child. So anyways, um, I, he said, figure it out. So I started reading all the data from Dr. Barodi, his protocols, and, and then I figured it out. And lo and behold, I did it on one of my patients who was a physician and he improved. His colon went from, you know, this ugly inflamed colon um, to beautiful, normal colon and his symptoms disappeared. So to me, and I always say that to people, I say, it's like watching a Martian that just stepped into your front door and you go, oh my God, there's life on Mars, you know? I didn't need any more than that. I saw healing, right? So when you see healing, when you see an experiment, it's that, that original experiment you know, that was coincidental where there was a Petri dish with some bacilli and a rotten apple was next to the bacilli and all of a sudden the fungus of the rotten apple evaporates the bacilli and you're like, oh my God, we discovered penicillin, right? So it's those cases that teach you the future of medicine. It's those coincidental cases that basically say there's something there and I need to look into it. So when C. diff occurred, um, and remember I was doing clinical trials, 
when clinical trials, so when clinical trials on C. diff were not successful, I would always do fecal transplant. And on the whole, 99% success with fecal transplant, my patients would be unbelievable. And, you know, and it was so funny because there was that, sure, it's going to work. Are you crazy? You're doing this. And then next thing you know, bam, they're better. And now they like, you know, call me for every little thing because they trust my, my knowledge. So when fecal transplant became a capsule and I started seeing on my desk clinical trials with feces in a pill from Korea, from China, from, you know, uh, America. I said, we're in the fecal material business and we don't even know what the hell we're doing. And that was at about the same time that companies like Ubiome and you know, all these companies of genetic sequencing were coming out, right? Like test your microbiome, know what's in your microbiome. So those two things kind of like said to me, what's going on? Like I already knew the business of pharma and I already knew, you know, how we go from developing drugs to what's going on. We're in poop pills. We have these lab assays that are not even validated that are telling people. And you saw the scam with Ubiome, where basically they told everyone, test your stools, and it was corrupt. It was a corrupt, you know, it was a Ponzi scheme, right? But I thought that there was a, and it was a shame because, you know, there was a woman behind it, and I just hate to have women in that light. So what I saw was an opportunity. I saw an opportunity to actually use that knowledge to create a validated assay, a verified assay, a reproducible assay where I could test my microbiome on today, tomorrow. It's still my fingerprint microbiome. And what I discovered along the way was just amazing. I mean, from the fact that, first of all, we're all different. If we're all different in our microbiome, how can we possibly be compared, right? So all these tests are telling you there's a normal to the microbiome. Well, they can't be a normal to the microbiome. If I'm born in Morocco and you're born in, you know, Poland, for example, and you went to Japan, China, and I went to Australia, New Zealand, we've eaten different foods and different microbes over the years, right? And so, but yet we're healthy, right? So we're both healthy, but we have a completely different microbiome picture because we have different fingerprints. So where does the truth lie into this? So I decided, well, I need to have a validated assay that basically compares. And I need to also compare apples with apples. I cannot compare people of different, um, you know, that are on medications, for example, because one patient on one medication is affecting the microbiome. The other one, is not on medication. Can I really compare those two populations, right? So I started drafting my protocol to analyze the microbiome. And I started with like one protocol, which was a generalized protocol, the microbiome and diseases. And then I focused in on the diseases. I decided, well, I'm in the clinical trial business. I've done clinical trials for, you know, almost 30 years, I'm, I'm sad to say. Um, I have all these protocols in my storage. Let me see what are we looking at for Parkinson's. Let me see what are we looking at for Alzheimer's. Let me fine tune these protocols to be specific to a disease, right? So this way, when I'm analyzing people with the same disease, I can kind of say, okay, well, you know what? There is something in common 
that I see and I'm not just making it up, right? And then the importance of a validated assay to say, you know what, this is your microbiome today. I'm giving you this medication. This medication changed your microbiome because I have a validated assay. Because even if I test you today, tomorrow, the next day, and you don't change anything, it's still your fingerprint of your microbiome. So for that, you have to go super deep into the microbiome. You can't just look at the surface. You have to go super deep into the species. Species that most businessmen do not understand that are, that are generating these labs because what is mycobacteria paratuberculosis to a businessman that owns a genetic sequencing lab? Doesn't know. Maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't know. What is Bacteroides vulgatus? What is Doria doing? What is what are all these bugs doing? And what is the what are the relationships to all these bugs? So I'm gonna stop talking, but essentially that was my path, the path of discovery. When COVID hit, I felt that here I have I'm a CRO, a clinical research organization. We put clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies to the to the to the market. And I'm a genetic sequencing lab with progenobiome. Surely. And I'm a gastroenterologist that's doing fecal transplant with hopes to find cures for different diseases. Surely, and this was this is when you look at yourself and you go, uh, I'm pretty sure God wanted me to do this, right? Because think about it, there's not that many gastroenterologists that do clinical trials and there's not that many gastroenterologists that understand genetic sequencing, right? So here I have three companies that are basically doing you know, coming together. So I said to myself, that's one thing that I have that most people don't have in the private world. And so I'm going to put my hat of a scientist and a gastroenterologist and a physician and a, and a clinical trial doctor on, and I'm going to try to crack the code on COVID. And so the first thing I obsessed with was basically finding COVID in the stools. And we were the first commercial lab that based, not commercial because we're a research lab, um, we were the first research lab that basically found COVID in the stools. And then from there, once we found COVID in the stools, we discovered a marker, which was the bifidobacteria, loss of bifidobacteria. Why was it so important? Because if you go back to the data of my data of prior to the pandemic, where I had assays and stool testing of multiple patients with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism, obesity, when you look at that data, the common denominator, cancer patients, the common de denominator of those high-risk people with COVID is the loss of bifidobacteria. Obese people have loss of bifidobacteria. Is that what puts them at risk for having COVID? You know, Alzheimer's patients have loss of bifidobacteria. Is that what puts them at risk for COVID? Uh, patients with cancer, loss of bifidobacteria. Is that what puts them at risk for COVID? So when you look at all that, and same with autism, some autistic kids have loss of bifidos, some don't, some have loss of others. So when you look at all that, you say, could bifidobacteria be important in life? And when you step back and you look at the trillion dollar business of probiotics, you realize, well, these businessmen know that there's something to bifidobacteria because all these products have bifidobacteria in them, all these yogurts, all these foods, all. So that's, so if we're, 
pushing a pill with bifidobacteria, surely we have to look at the bifidobacteria in our guts to say, yeah, you know what? I'm lacking some and I need some. So. Mm. Wow, so much to, to talk about. So, so much to regurgitate. So much, so much, yes. I was just thinking, you know, I've looked at people and I have worked with people also who are long, who have had COVID and they have lots of symptoms afterwards, a year later, two years later, and every one of them has digestive issues on top of viruses and other things yes. coming up. Um, so my question is, for those people that have had COVID, do you see that their bifido is rising back? It's being rebuilt. Okay, so for those, so the, first of all, we're preliminary data. Yes, yes. Um, it is difficult when you've had, and I'm gonna show this example. When you've had a hurricane go through a city, it is difficult to rebuild the city within a month, right? You have, you've had a hurricane that went into your microbiome and COVID hit because your microbiome was dysbiosed to begin with. It was out of balance. So those people that had zero bifidobacteria, high bacteroides, because it's not only bifido, it's, it's really an equation. Low facilobacterium pratsnisi, low diversity. These people are predisposed to having viruses penetrating because Pandora's box is open. You have a gap, you have a colonic leak, right? That colonic leak allows viruses to penetrate. So these people that started off catching COVID, getting severely sick from COVID, had a gut dysbiosis to begin with. And if you ask the questions, much like you ask the question of the long haulers with their GI, these people will tell you, you know what? I've had digestive problems my whole life. I've had a cynophilic gastritis. I've had Crohn's. I've had irritable bowel. I've had microscopic colitis. I've had celiac. I've had constipation. I've had diarrhea. So I've had bloating, dyspepsia, right? So these are your clues onto what's going to happen in the future that's going to predispose you to have viruses penetrate. Once that gap is open, that colonic wall is open, viruses are going to penetrate. You got to close the gap. So you got to bring back the balance, right? So how do you bring back the balance? Well, it's not one pill. Like, oh, well, let's just take a ton of probiotics. It'll increase the balance. No. It's work to drop the bad to increase, but you got to know what the bad are. And by the way, with the long haulers, and I'll kind of let this leak, it's not so straightforward, okay? Some long haulers still have COVID in their guts. We're seeing it, right? I talked to my friends that are, that are gastroenterologists and they're like, yeah, I'm doing biopsies, I'm seeing it. So you are the, so is COVID still in their gut? So that's number one. Number two, did COVID enter, leave the gut, and leave some remnants that are still creating havoc in the gut? Number three, did COVID enter, destroy the gut that was already destroyed, and now you're left with a desolate gut, right? Like a desolate planet. If you remove trees, you remove life, right? There's nowhere for birds to, to sit on. There's no more... You know, there's no more fruits. There's no life, right? The, the planet is desolate. Well, a desolate planet is like a desolate gut. If you have a desolate gut, you got to rebuild. Mm -hmm. Are you going to rebuild a planet? How are you going to rebuild a planet that's desolate, that you've removed all the trees, you removed, you've killed all the microbes, you've killed the earth. How are you going to rebuild that? It's very, very difficult. So that's the big problem and the big challenge with the long haulers is really figuring out 
what is occupying their gut? Is COVID still there? And more importantly, how do we rebuild the gut, right? Mm -hmm. And that's research that's going to tell us. That's why it's so important to invest in research that's of this caliber, because this is what gives us the answers. You know, we're, we're funded by a nonprofit, essentially, to get these answers and mostly my savings, because to me, it was important for me to know. Because I said to myself, I'm going to catch COVID. I'm on the front line. How do I protect myself? That's why I stepped into the fire, because I felt that, you know, I wasn't scared. I was scared at the beginning, and I, I wore like an astronaut suit to get into my lab and analyze stools of COVID. But I was convinced that COVID was in the stools, so I was really protected. But then I couldn't breathe in that, in that you know, uh, suit and mask and everything and i'm like forget it you know what i'm just gonna be the guinea pig and at least we'll learn from me being the guinea pig and i'll you know save the children save the save people by me learning on the front line right so that's so i was perfectly prepared to just step in and the whole joke in my office was like yeah doctor you know because i would tell patients i'm like you know what don't be scared i'm not wearing it but i'm testing myself I have a genetic lab that tests my stools on a regular basis. So I'm still clean. So it was kind of, you know, this, this funny, um, you know, uh, story that was happening. Because I, I tried to keep myself the whole pandemic. Because remember, so much of healing is light, right? It's seeing the light. And I kept myself, you know, in the light. I didn't want to go into the darkness, watch the people dying. I wanted to focus on the people living. And I really think that was one of my best way. That's why I even called the book, Let's Talk, instead of Let's Talk Microbiome, I called it Let's Talk SH.T because <laughs> I said, you know what? It's going to be funny. You know, who's not going to laugh at the word SH.T? And who's not going to laugh at a girl, at a physician from Malibu who's playing with poop and he's collecting with poop, right? And maybe we need to bring a little bit more laughter into this dark world. And so that was my way of surviving the pandemic, right? Was like, and fighting the bots and all this disaster on Twitter. It was basically, you know what? I'm going to take it with humor and I'm going to have a good attitude. And you know what? I think that was part of my success. I've lost no one on the pandemic. No one died. And here I was doing the controversial clinical trials on hydroxy and on ivermectin. And without saying, you know, what the results of these trials are or what we saw, you know, it was important for me to do it with the agencies because I wanted them more importantly than me seeing it. I wanted them to see the data. Um, it's a shame that it went political and it basically kept me in this area where I'm not on one side and I'm not on the other. I'm kind of on that middle path where I just, I'm asking constantly questions, you know, like right now I'm asking the question as a clinical trial research doctor, why was a vaccine accepted to move to the next phase just based on my studies? Yeah, you there know? was like eight mice, right? It was a study just on eight, eight or 18 mice. That's it. That's all they did. I mean, no clinical data, no patient data, no safety profile, no safety. I mean, why did we create ICHGCP guidelines, right? I mean, why did we create this whole, all these agencies, FDA, EUA? Why, if we are not going to do clinical trials? And the bigger question is, 
if you're pushing a drug that without human clinical trials, why I'm, are my protocols on familial FMT where I'm taking poop from a family member, right? And I'm giving it to a kid with autism in the hopes of helping that kid. Why has it taken three years to get approved? Why is it taking three years? We've still not approved. So these are the questions that irk me and that turn me into a hurricane and that really, I mean, make me move faster than anybody. I'm publishing five papers in the next month. I'm, I'm submitting five abstracts at a big national college. And I'm speaking at seven conferences, national conferences. One of them was uh, the neuro, the um, regenerative medicine in Boston that just passed. Oh, and the one, the A4M. The A4M. Yeah, A4M. That's the one I'm actually, yeah, that's the one I did my board certification in 2007, 2009. Yeah, oh. so I'm, I spoke, I, I'm a recurrent speaker at that conference because oh. I talked about the microbiome. I'm speaking at the Lyme conference next weekend. You know, my I'm I'm going to ACG. Well, maybe going, maybe not, um, but definitely presenting some data. You know, the bottom line is I'm going out there. In fact, I'm doing a microbiome conference where I'm going to be speaking in front of the FDA and the NIH and National Institute of Standard because I think it's important to be in the same room as those people, to be having these discussions as scientists. And I'm not going to stop. And the reality is there's a, I don't have, you know, the money of pharma to put these protocols to market. I'm not interested in putting these protocols to market. I patented them, yes, because I wanted to make sure that there was, you know, if I'm doing all this research, I want to make sure there's a, you know, we as women, especially minority women, are always in the closet. You know, we, we discuss the data, but somebody else is talking about it. I wanted for the first time that, you know what? No, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to patent it. If the patent is good, great. If the patent is not good, I'm going to tell the truth. So just because I own a patent doesn't mean that I'm going to bring a product to market. And frankly, I want to see the data on the microbiome. That's what's more important to me. Surviving COVID is one thing, um, but surviving living a quality life, long quality of life is another. That's my goal for people. When people come into my office, it's not to give them that Band-Aid that says, okay, well, here you are. Here's a Band-Aid. You're safe with COVID. Great. My job is to make sure that I remove the Band-Aid and they're still alive in five years, 10 years, and that they can live to their maximum potential. You know, some of my patients are in their 90s. I, I did a colonoscopy one time on a 97-year-old and found a, a colon cancer in him. He was a painter. He was working. He was, you know, doing his thing. And guess what? I sent him to a surgeon who resected it and he survived and he lived and he lived another 10 years. Amazing. I'm not going to look at a number and say, oh, you're 97. I don't need to do a colonoscopy. You're done. The guy's still painting. He's still like functional in humanity, you know? So our job is to allow people to live as long as possible and not just to give that Band-Aid. Yes, I agree with you. So I want to look at some of the data that you've discovered, because you just mentioned the COVID vaccines. I want to look into, is there a difference in what you're finding as far as the microbiome, uh, those that are vaccinated with mRNA versus like vector vaccines, like uh, Janssen and Janssen, AstraZeneca, right, Pfizer, and then mRNA, Pfizer, Moderna. Are you seeing the difference in how? We're still analyzing. So that data is coming for sure. 
but we have all that data. We have non-vaccinated, we have vaccinated, we have before COVID. Um, so we have all that. So it's a lot of data. We're still analyzing. It's a huge bioinformatics pipeline. So I'm not going to talk about, you know, what we're seeing or even guess, but, you know, obviously my interest with looking at the microbiome was to tell me the story, right? To say, if I test my, if I test a person that was va before vaccination and I test them after vaccination and something changed in his microbiome, I need to pay attention because to me, the microbiome tells a story. So we started with bifidobacteria and I'll tell you why bifidobacteria for me is bifidobacteria is extremely high in kids, babies. So you're born with a 90% bifidobacteria in your gut. And you probably get that because you're drinking your mother's milk, you're, you're born, you got all those microbes from your mom and through the vaginal canal, et cetera. And we've certainly seen the studies of C-section, sterile versus vaginal, where it's better to like deliver vaginal and, and mix in those microbes, right? Um, I think what I saw at the beginning of the pandemic was two different reactions to COVID. The young were barely touched, the old were dying. What is the main difference between those two groups is your bifidobacteria level. Babies are born with a lot of bifidobacteria, old people die with zero. So the process of aging is loss of bifidobacteria. So I think bifidobacteria has a huge role in looking at it, but not only bifido, obviously there are other microbes that are specific to different races, but right now we're gonna focus on bifidobacteria because it's the most well-known microbe. Bifidobacteria, because it disappears as we age, you can almost hypothesize that if you lose it, you're aging faster, right? So therefore we need to pay attention to what it's doing. What is it doing after vaccination? What is it doing after treatments, right? What is, and then is it bouncing back? Is it improving, right? So in other words, well, it killed some bifidobacteria at the beginning for the first two months, but then later people readapted a nutrition and then their bifidobacteria went up. Is that what happened? I'm not so sure, right? So we need to not only look at short-term before and after, you know, what is what, what are these products doing on the bifidobacteria short-term, right? But then what is it doing long-term? When I'm following a patient for a year and I'm noticing, you know, his bifidobacteria got killed, but it's still persisting a year later, even though he's doing probiotics or he's eating fermented food, is he doing the right probiotics? Is he doing the right fermented foods for his diet, for his, you know, genetics or for his, um, where he was from, where he was born, where he was, you know, raised. So to me, I think microbes are passed on from generations to generations. I think microbes have some mystery to them, right? That basically tells us the story of life. You talk about C. diff, right? And you look at C. diff. Well, our lab discovered that C. diff was present in everyone we tested, non-toxigenic. In other words, it wasn't secreting toxins. It was just present as a fingerprint. If you look at C. diff, C. diff's been around for at least 10 million years. So is C. diff part of our microbiome? And did C. diff start getting pissed off in a way 
and secrete its toxins because we killed off all its families. That's definitely what we're seeing with C. diff. We're seeing that when you lose the diversity, C. diff is left alone and starts secreting toxins to kill the human. And, you know, Dr. Howard Young said to me one time, he said, but that doesn't make sense. Why would bacteria, microbes kill humans, right? They're there to like protect the humans. And I said to him, I said, the whole purpose of microbes is to kill the human. The whole purpose of our existence is microbes inhabiting our guts. And then at the end, the microbes are, get the, the, the bad ones get stronger, the good ones get weaker. And eventually those microbes take over our bodies and puts us back into the earth. So essentially that's the purpose of a human being. We're just a reservoir for these microbes. So these microbes at the end takes us back and puts us back to the earth and they do the, what they need to do in the earth. We need to understand them better as we're alive, you know? And I it was Sanofi Pastor that said, in the end, the microbes are taking over. Mm. It is the microbes that will win, you know? It is the it's, it's really, yeah, it's really about also human beings understanding how to live in the symbiotic relationship with yes. the bacteria in our gut, right? Yes. How to keep the right population under control so exactly. one doesn't take over the other, and which happens, I would say, with most population, right? The leaky Absolutely. gut is like, what, over 90%, 95% of our industrialized population has leaky Absolutely. gut. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. I think that's very important. I think that's a very important concept to understand that all we are is a reservoir of microbes. And yes. once we understand that, we understand that life doesn't just finish for microbes after we're dead, because these microbes are still going under the ground and doing mm. their thing. So when you understand that, you start realizing where well, there's something bigger, right? What are we here to learn? Because I think we're all here to learn lessons, right? Mm -hmm. We're all here to shape the world somehow. So in the past, you know, people were shaking the world with like wars and, and guns and everything. Now we're in the world of the microbiome. I, I said from the beginning, the war is between microbes. We humans are just transient, but the war is between bugs. Think about it when you're, thinking of treating COVID and you're using a drug like ivermectin, what is ivermectin? It's a fermented product of a bacteria called streptomyces. So in essence, streptomyces is the same bacteria that's in the same category as bifidobacteria. So is streptomyces giving its byproduct to feed the bifidobacteria and therefore increase your bifidobacteria when you need it during a cytokine storm? And therefore, you're releasing the cytokines, and that's what allows people to breathe oxygen. That's why this was a whole discovery for me, because only when you're on the front line and you see treatment, you see you gave someone 36 milligrams of ivermectin on their way to the hospital with an oxygen of 77%, and they stopped at McDonald's to eat those French fries with the ivermectin, and then they get to the hospital and their oxygen is 92%. Something happened, right? It's what not the McDonald's that happened, by the way. It's not the McDonald's. It's the fatty <laughs> meal with the streptomyces <laughs> fermented product mm -hmm. that delivered to the gut what it was supposed to deliver. In other words, that fermentation bypassed the stomach acid, mm -hmm. ended up in, the, in the, your colon, 
to almost stimulate your cytokines. And then when the cytokines are woken up, I mean, sorry, to, to, to stimulate the bifidobacteria, when your bifidobacteria are woken up, they take those cytokines, flush them out, sure. leaving space for the removing the cytokines from the lung, which all go through circulation. You know, the whole body circulates. You know, the blood circulates to the colon, the lungs, everything that's in the lung, in the nose, on the skin circulates, right, to the colon. So your colon is a big compost in a way. Mm -hmm. So we have to start thinking of it that way. And we, when we start thinking of it that way, we start saying, well, you know what? Maybe bifidobacteria does have an importance. Maybe what I'm seeing when I'm seeing Dr. Hussein Boskert's data on bifidobacteria that shows that it improves Crohn's disease. And we discovered our lab and we're presenting at ACG that Crohn's disease actually is loss of bifidobacteria in naive patients, right? That mm -hmm. were not treated. We discovered that they had zero bifidobacteria. So is Crohn's disease loss of bifidobacteria that allows for viruses to penetrate and other bacteria to penetrate, right? So it's all about the balance. And I think that's how fixing the balance. So when you look at his studies and he did, you know, um, bifidobacteria with xylokine implant, xylokine implant into the cecum, and essentially you're seeing a patient is improving his Crohn's, there's something to that data, right? When you see his studies on bifidobacteria decomposing plastic, there's something to that data, right? So, because think about it, we're drinking all these containers with, that are in water with plastic. They sit in our car, microplastic gets into our colon. If you don't have enough bifidobacteria, you're not decomposing that. So your bowels are getting, you know- And they're finding plastic in the blood now. Yes. So In the bloodstream. So all that plays a role. So it's, a, it's basically this huge domino effect of destruction, 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 and the wrong, you know, things to rejuvenate, to refloralize. Yeah. So would you say that the reason, because just recently NIH, uh, National Institute of Health added ivermectin, which is, I, I just thought last year was like the craziest thing where they were saying, yeah, it's for horses. I'm like, no, as a pharmacist, I've actually dispensed it for rosacea patients as well. But right. anyway, right. now the drug is back on the NIH website. And I'm wondering, what is it that they are reevaluating? Is it some of the data that you are presenting? Well, definitely the FDA follows me, the National Institute of Standard follows me, the NIH follows me. I mean, you know, I have contact with those guys, because I've been working with them, you know, I'm trying to do things right, and be validated. So of course, it helps me to work with them. Even though I'm not a fan of the regulatory, listen, I, I'm tired of like fighting for these protocols to be approved, but I will keep fighting and I will keep nagging until my protocols get approved and they're not going to, um, they're not going to stop me from that. So what I'm seeing is, first of all, if you look at the website, it says four clinical trials only. Yes. So that's how they, they passed it. But obviously they're open to the data. Obviously they're doing their own due diligence themselves. Remember, the National Institute of Standard is what overlooks the FDA, the CDC, because they have to provide standards. When the CDC has a question about a virus, they go to the National Institute of Standard and say, what is going on there? When they have, you know, they, when the FDA is questioning something about the microbiome, they'll go to the National Institute of Standard, Scott Jackson, and say, Scott, 
What are we seeing? Can we, is that legit or is that not legit, right? And then Scott Jackson, who by the way is a speaker at the Malibu Microbiome found the, uh, Conference that I created, Malibu Microbiome Meeting, is a meeting where all doctors that are doing fecal transplant and scientists that are working on the microbiome are joining on a, on a single meeting on, you know, we're not, it's basically an, supported again by the nonprofit, the Microbiome Research Foundation, to basically talk about what we want to talk about. So in other words, I'm not giving you, I'm not paying you to talk about my new drug. I'm not paying you to talk about, you know, a new lab test. I'm giving you a stage to present the data you want to present as a scientist. So we had uh, Dr. Sahil Khanna from Mayo Clinic, who basically talked about um, fecal transplant and chronic urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. You know, this was not sponsored by any pharmaceutical company. This was his research, his observations, and it gave him a platform. Mimi Wang from MD Anderson talked about cancer and the role of fecal transplant in cancer patients, you know, and how the colitis was improving post-chemo drugs. So maybe bringing on the, uh, the, the thought that when we're giving these chemo drugs, should we be focusing also on the microbiome? And so that's why it's so important to write the data, to collaborate with all these doctors, to mm -hmm. be unbiased, to be middle point. You know, my friend Neil, who started me in this business, always said, Dr. Neil Stallman always says, there are no right or wrong answers in research. It's all right, it's all wrong. We have, science evolves. Doctors and scientists make a mistake if they are black and white, if they go one way or another because they catch themselves in a rabbit hole when the data comes out. When the data comes out that contradicts that you're white or you're black and the data says pink, you're stuck because you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because for every formula, for every equation, there's another equation that you can think of that can negate the, the first equation. For every science experiment, there are you know, infinite amounts of possibilities. And those possibilities could lead us to a cure or an improvement in the disease. We cannot mm -hmm. stop those possibilities. Think about where Madame Curie was, would be, if she hadn't looked at that rock and discovered radium, right? Yes. Think of where we would be, although she she regretted having discovered it. Uh, but, you know, I think some research, you know, like need to be discovered. I, I think yeah. the microbiome has a story to tell. It's the story of life. It's the story of humanity. It needs to be told. And what a shame it would be if we stopped the storytelling, because at some point we all become patients. I don't care if you're on a, you know, you're so right about this protocol or this protocol. At, at some point you are going to be the patient. Mm -hmm. And when you're the patient, you're going to say, I should have, could have, would have. I wish I had invested in research because now I have Alzheimer's. That's what happened to me when I, you know, my midlife crisis was really that moment of, do I invest in a genetic sequencing lab and understand the microbiome or do I just, you know, use my money and retire in a condo in Italy, right? So, and what I did is I basically said, you know, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to spend it on a genetic sequencing lab because at some point I'm going to be that patient and I'm going to say, I, I should have, could have, would have. Now I can't remember my daughter's date of birth 
because I was so cheap that I didn't want to invest or I didn't want to spend my time investing in understanding mm -hmm. the microbiome. Yeah, and to me, I mean, microbiome is really the key to the key to understanding every chronic condition that exists on this yes. planet. And without Absolutely. fixing the gut first or addressing it first, you cannot begin to even address anything else. And that includes the brain, because if the gut is on fire, the brain is inflamed. So you're talking yeah. about Alzheimer's, it's everything. everything. It's nerve. Yes, so it communicates directly. Uh, to I our... had a case eight years ago of a guy who uh, basically was going to join one of my clinical trials for Alzheimer's. And so I had done a mini mental status on him and his mini mental status was 20. And he couldn't qualify because it was too severe. They wanted moderate. They wanted mild to moderate. So um, he comes in a couple months after and he has C. diff. And I gave him vancomycin, didn't work. Fidaxomycin, didn't work. And then finally I said, you know what? I'm going to do fecal transplant because this guy was still a golfer. I mean, he was Alzheimer's, but he was still golfing and enjoying his life. And his wife was enjoying they were married for like 40 50 years and so basically he comes in and I use the wife as the donor right because I felt well they've been married they've shared microbes he probably lost some microbes from all the antibiotics he got from you know pneumonia after pneumonia and then what happened is um he started he came back to my clinic and he he was chatty and he was like he corrected me on something that I had forgotten right which happens often because I'm doing 25 things at the same time. And basically he said to me something. He said, no, you said that last time. And I go, what? And I went back and then I said, wait a minute. Is he remembering things? She goes, oh, he's much happier. He's golfing. He's a different man. I said, you know, let me do a mini mental status on him. And lo and behold, he went from, you know, 21 to 26. I called this neurologist and I said, did you do a mini mental status on your patient? He goes, yeah, I found him to be 26. I go, oh my God, we've both found the same mini mental status. He comes back six months later and he remembered his daughter's date of birth. So you could almost imagine that implantation of his wife's microbiome was giving him something that allowed him to remember his mini mental status was 29. I tried to publish the paper. It took me three years to publish because the editors did not believe this case. They're like, impossible. I had to send them the mini mental status at baseline, which you know, the two squares with the triangle yes. that Alzheimer's patients have to draw and then they have to juxtapose the two squares and triangles together. I had to send the triangles that were all messed up from the baseline to a perfect square with a triangle intersected um, to the editor to say, look, this was before, this was after. Mini mental status 21, now it's 29, okay? So something changed. And back then I didn't have my genetic sequencing lab. I was just stool collecting. But what happened, and that's how the path started is I was sending my stools to different labs and I was getting different results and I couldn't make heads or tail of anything. And that's why I created Progenobiome as a genetic sequencing lab. That's a research lab to understand the microbiome. When I went to Dr. Cindy Feingold with this case, who was the guy who wrote uh, in, uh, um, anaerobic infections, um, I went to, see, to talk to him and I said, what am I seeing when I'm improving Alzheimer's? He had the biggest smile and he, cause he was, he had stopped working. He was, 
in the 90s, stopped working at the VA where he was doing all his experiments, exposed to all these microbes. And his whole work was on Alzheimer's and he started getting Alzheimer's. Mm. And he said, here's a paper, put it in your safe. When you open your lab, you're going to understand the microbes behind Alzheimer's. And so to me, it was so during the Woolsey yeah. fire, yeah, it was basically, I put the paper and I, you know, I'm kind of, you know, one of those like Indiana Jones, I'm excited. This is like a new hunt for me, you know, to discover, right. It's a discovery, the Holy grail. Right. And so I put the paper and I wasn't really going to open it. And then one thing led to another, I couldn't understand this case. It wasn't getting published and I kept pushing and pushing. Mm -hmm. And then I said, you know what? I'm opening my lab. And when I made that decision, all of a sudden, kid, he, Dr. Feingold was very big with autism. Kids with autism started coming to me. Um, you know, the idea of fecal transplant. And then he passed away and left. And I inherited somehow all his books with his signed by him and all his papers, all his patents. And I saw one of the patents had Dr. Tom Barodi in it. And I contacted Dr. Barodi and I said, you won't believe this, but I found a patent of you and Dr. Feingold. And he goes, yes, Dr. Feingold. He was named appropriately. Mm -hmm. And he goes, you're going to be bombarded with kids with autism. I said, autism? I don't deal with autism. He goes, watch. When Dr. Adams' study comes out, you're going to be bombarded with kids with autism. And he was right. I mean, I've you know looked at the stools of hundreds of families with kids with autism. We're slowly showing the data. We're going to be showing the data on fecal transplant with familial FMT with one case that took us four years almost. Um, you know, the data, it's slow because you have to go through all these regulations, which again, bothers me that that vaccines that was tested on mice got to see the light before my protocols. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not going to stop nagging about this because I want the FDA to hear me and hear my nag and because I'm going to keep rehashing it. Until they say, oh God, Dr. Hazen again, we need to like let her do her research. <laughs> and that's what it's about, right? Yes. That's, and that's our, our quality as women is we're not going to stop. We're going to just keep nagging and nagging. You can say anything you want about me. You can give me 483s till you're blue in the face. I am not stopping my research. I'm continuing on and on. I will hire 300 doctors and scientists if I have to, but I'm continuing it. That's this so is the great. We need yes. To and this is really what medicine is about. It's about evolution and, and understanding, right? It's not about taking sides, but what does data show? And right. I want to briefly touch upon, you said you patented this protocol and you weren't attached to it because you wanted to know the truth about the, the data itself. And I want to know some of the things that are showing up that could be happening with things like hydroxychloroquine. And then there is, of course, people who are, because you touched upon ivermectin, that you are seeing that it's actually supporting the bifido with patients who are hypoxic. So you, if their oxygen is low, you see their oxygen is So being that low. was the hypothesis that we published. We published a hypothesis that basically says, is the ivermectin, the fermented product of streptomyces, feeding the bifidobacteria and increasing it? So obviously, you know, that data is coming out because we've done the experiment. Um, and I've seen it, I've seen it on myself where, you know, I took ivermectin and I saw my bifidobacteria go up and I have a validated assay so I could see before and after it's still my fingerprint, still my microbes, you know, my facilobacterium is high, my, you know, I, I see me in the microbiome. So when I see something that's increasing, you know, I pay attention to it. Um, yeah, I mean, hydroxychloroquine 
possibility. So the hydroxychloroquine, the possibility and the, the concern that I have is, yes, it is probably killing the virus. We're looking at the data, we're publishing the data, but is it killing the whole microbiome? And are you recuperating that microbiome later on? Or are you a sitting duck? Vice, vice versa, the vaccine, is it killing your bifidobacteria? Short-term, is it killing it long-term? That's the hypothesis that I'm doing. That's why I haven't really, until you see the data being published, I'm not going out there because I need to, to talk to, the, to my peers. I need them to kind of criticize it. And, I, and believe me, before I publish anything, I already have a group of like 10 doctors that criticize my data to begin with. You know, Neil Stolman is probably the, the best critic for me because he will find all the loopholes that I messed up on and they'll say, nope, you didn't do this, this, talk about this, this. So that's why, you know, it was such a privilege to have the lost microbes of COVID-19 had some amazing authors in it. It had, Neil Stolman was my second author. Um, and it was so important for me to have him there because before I published that data, which was critical, right? This was a data that showed that people with severe COVID had zero bifidobacteria, zero facilobacterium pratinitsi, low diversity, high bacteroides versus people that are exposed to people with, with COVID and never got COVID that had high facilobacterium, high bifido, high diversity, low bacteroides, right? So that formula, you know, that the, we did the stats on it, you know, so Dr. Eamon Quigley, who is the father of probiotics, is on that paper. Dr. Tom Barodi, who's the father of fecal transplant, is on that paper. Hussein Boskert, who wrote the original hypothesis paper on bifidobacteria being a, a problem for COVID patients, um, was on that paper. Brad Barrows, my scientist, um, you know, my pathologist, my uh, Andreas Papuzzi, who is my genetic sequencing um, director who basically came up with the uh, pipeline and was behind the BRCA gene, you know? So this, these guys are legit, they're golden, they've published amongst all of them. So when that data came out and then you start seeing people that are on the other side, uh, you know, the, you have the vaccine people, but I think the vaccine people are starting, those physicians that were pushing vaccines are slowly starting to come to the middle to see the microbiome data. And then you've got the people that were pushing the hydroxy and the ivermectin Corsetin, and quercetin also coming to see the microbiome data. And they're starting to think, could it be? Yes, because really, yes, we are seeing amazing results with hydroxy, with ivermectin. It, it, you know, people have been saved and myself, I've lost no one, right? But is that a protocol for everyone or is it, should it be used for when you're dying? Because if you're healthy, you're a young adult and you're essentially should be surviving COVID, right? Should you be taking all these drugs? Right, that's what's been microbiome, mm -hmm. When your own microbiome is there to fight, when you possibly have a lot of bifidobacteria. So when I treated all my patients with COVID, one of the thoughts that was always in my mind when I was treating them is, what do I believe their bifidobacteria level is? If I had a diabetic, CHF, COPD, um, you know, cancer, and I knew that, you know, they would die from the virus, right? 
or even a 97-year-old patient, they would die from the virus. The risk of the virus outweighs the benefit of the drugs that I give them. So of course, I'm going to give them everything. They're dying. They don't want to go to the hospital. Their oxygen is 63. What I've observed by treating these people, one after the other after the other, which takes a lot of hand-holding and a lot of, you know, time with the patient to basically say, which in today's world of practicing medicine is not feasible, by the way, there are, there is no way, you know, that doctors have that time or that leisure to take care of like 20, 30 patients a day and just listen to them at night and at two o'clock in the morning and pay attention to their oxygen on such a careful level. Right. So I did this because I was my whole purpose was basically lose no one. I wanted to show that treatment, early treatment works. And I wanted to stratify the treatment. In other words, well, if you're young, then this is the treatment that you're doing. If you're old with this. So my thought process was always, you know, what do I think your bifidobacteria level is in your gut, right? And then from there, started treating the patients. And before people go crazy with like probiotics and everything, um, because that's like the next step with like, because I talk about bifidobacteria, remember bifidobacteria needs to be in your colon. So it has to bypass the stomach. Is your probiotic that you're taking bypassing the stomach? Most getting to the seat right, are not. Most right. don't, right. right. So, and then the other thing is, is your bottle, is the label really saying bifidobacteria is there bifidobacteria there's enough data out there that show that 16 out of 17 probiotics that were tested say they have bifidobacteria but there is no bifidobacteria yes. in there which makes you wonder who's controlling that right mm -hmm. who is controlling all these products and because the there's no regulation on it and this no. is one of the things I, I actually address quite often there's zero regulation on zero. supplement world uh in the world of supplements so it's very important to know exactly the products you're taking and that's why i also encourage testing you know testing the one yes, test work. your microbiome test your you know mm -hmm. that's going to be the future of course we're we're a research lab so we're here to do the research so if, a, if, and I've, I've seen a bunch of probiotics that are actually doing what they're supposed to do. Um, I will be talking about those because I've done the research myself. Nobody paid me, you know, think about when I talk about a yogurt and pushing a yogurt, I'm not getting paid by the yogurt company uh, to push that yogurt. Um, I think that's the key of research, right? The key of research is to be unbiased and to say, I'm sorry, but your yogurt was not... You know, it says bifidobacteria, but it doesn't have that. Most yogurts actually don't work. I know most people right. think, oh, and, I'm and eating so yogurt and great. Right, it's not. Yeah, so it's so much It's so much more complicated. Yes. It's so much more complicated than that because it's, 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 it's about, you know, the fermentation. It's about the nutrients in your body. It's about the receptor, you know, is your, you know, it's two, two folds really. Is it the bifidobacteria is one, but is that bifidobacteria fitting into your colon? The colon receptor is another, yeah. right? So well, because if a person has leaky gut, they can take any kind of supplements they want. It's never going to get to where it needs to go, period. Yes. And that also, has to be yeah. And, and I think we don't talk about the receptors enough. We don't talk about how do we get that bifido to implant in the colon? What creates the implantation? You know, that's, and 
how does it bypass the stomach, the small bowel to get to the cecum to begin with, which is your compost? So there's so many questions. We're at the beginning of all this. And I think consumers need to be vigilant of what they're sold, you know, and to understand that whatever you put in your gut, you know, that pill that told you you're going to lose your waist by 10 pounds may just start a domino effect in your bowels that kills your gut microbiome. And then you don't have to play detective. You just have to go, I wonder what happened. Oh yeah, I took that pill that they told me I would lose weight from. And instead yeah. now I have an arthritic I'm, problem. I'm finding like so many schemes right now too, like where people will call me and say, Lena, you know, there's this protocol for detox of, uh, you know, I was vaccinated for people who are vaccinated. I'm like, oh my God, first of all, we need to test and find out, is it real for you? What is, what is in this product? Yes. But there's so many multi-level marketing products that are being pushed. It's frightening. So much. And people are desperate to have that one cure you know, uh, you know, to have the answer yes, to all of it. So much. And I so do much. have a question because we didn't address it. Maybe you can give me some kind of feedback. Quercetin. So many people are, have been on quercetin for the last two years and I'm like, stop taking it. So I want to know what your, um, so, you know, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic when it comes to fabrication of pills and, 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 um, you know, good practice in, and you're from the pharmaceutical world, right? So you understand that so many pharmaceutical companies do not, and especially in the nutritional world, do not use standard operating procedures to have a, cl a clean environment, right? So many products, you know, think about it, bacteria in the gut is supposed to be anaerobic, doesn't breathe oxygen. So mm -hmm. if all of a sudden I'm um, exposing those powders to the oxygen, am I killing the bacteria? And therefore am I getting dead bacteria in that capsule? And what is that dead bacteria doing to a live colon? Is it possibly killing my live microbes, right? Because it's like sleeping with corpse. Nothing good comes out of sleeping with corpse, right? You end up getting a lot of diseases, right? So I think that's the first thing is, you know, how is the facility? What is the facility doing to, is it just a massive production that just figured out a loophole in the marketing and decided to sell you this, you know, these tools, there's so many. And yes, there needs to be regulations, but it needs to be quality supervision, not paperwork. Because I think the mistake that people do is they go into prestige, uh, you know, like a clean, clean facility and they look at the paperwork and they're like, oh, the paperwork is amazing. That must mean that there's everything. But nobody's really testing the products. Nobody's testing the ingredients, right? And so that's what we need to demand. We need to demand a quality control. In and there are words, some that are doing it, like the GMP, right? The, yes. They hire a, a third-party lab that will come in yes. and is what's on the label actually in the bottle, right? So Correct. This but is not every important. facility is doing that. Yes. So, and not every facility is GMP, you know, facility. Certified, so yes. When we started, and, and vice versa for drugs, right? So think about all these people that bought ivermectin everywhere. Where did they buy it from? You know, was it made in a garage somewhere? Because I can assure you that ivermectin is probably not good. Also, was it temperature monitored? You remember when you get drugs, you get them in this nice cooler with a little temperature monitor check, and you have to check that the thermometer is actually fine and that the drugs are valid, right? If the temperature is not good, the drug is not good because it was right. in a hot environment and the, the dry ice melted or whatever. 
So I think, you know, that's very important. And also, was there a temperature check the whole time that the, that the meds were in a cabinet? You know, when yeah. we do clinical trials, and when we did those clinical trials on hydroxychloroquine, ZPAC, vitamin C, D, and zinc, we actually hired a company that was a GMP facility that basically made us, you know, um, 300 uh, containers of hydroxy ZPAC, vitamin C, D, and zinc versus um, hydroxy ZPAC placebo with vitamin C, D, and zinc, right? So we had, you know, and if I take those, those vitamins or if I take and we tested the vitamins ourselves in the lab um, and we had another lab retest to make sure that they're what we say they are, you know, once we have these vitamins, we could say, you know what, this was done in the GMP facility. We verified it. We validated it. It's gold, right? There's not enough of that out there. And, and people have, you know, I had, why did I create my own vitamins as opposed to going to CVS? I don't know where the CVS generic vitamins are coming from. I would I, never I buy, by the way, any pharmacy vitamins that are on the market. You know? Well, and you know what? I mean, you know, are they made in China? Are they made, you know, I've been to China. So I've seen those factories. It's, it's, it's literally factories, you know, it's like, you know, and is it the same microbes that are in those vitamins are the same microbes for America? I mean, are we mixing all that? So is it helping me? What is the capsule that the vitamin is made of? You know, mm -hmm. if the capsule is toxic to your microbiome and killing your bifidobacteria. Exactly. Well, it doesn't matter that you're taking vitamin C and vitamin D if the capsule is killing your bifidobacteria, right? So I think, you know, that's the supervision that we need from the regulatory agencies. It's not about the paperwork that, you know, oh, mm -hmm. you forgot to submit a paperwork, you know, and therefore you're getting a 483. It's about what's in my food. Is, is my food having bifidobacteria like it says it does on the yogurt? Or does it have Bacillus serous, which is a bacteria that causes vomiting? Or does it have Streptococcus? Or does it have E. coli? How many, how many patients have I seen in Ventura County right now with E. coli? Where are they getting E. coli from? Is it in the fields? Are they spraying something? Mm. You know, but there's a lot of kids that are coming with diarrhea with E. coli. Where's that coming from? So that's where we need the agencies. That's where we need the feds, the you know, boots on the ground to kind of do the investigating. Look yeah. at all the facilities, mm -hmm. investigate. Don't just look at the paperwork. Pick up the phone. See. So yes, yeah, so with quercetin, did you find in your studies hydroxychloroquine and quercetin? I know, even if it's hypothetical, anything that you can say. Uh, yes, it was. It's it's supporting or no? It's I'm not going to say it because right now there's a huge okay. political agenda. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, the, and especially it's the midterms. So, and I'm already getting enough. You know, fight. I'm I'm having to deal with that with the FDA because got it. We leave it. We leave it until your your. They want to put my protocols on hold. So I'm like, you know, at this point, I'm going to say, let the data speak for itself. Let the experts criticize the data, let it be published or right. not, and let others validate the data, but most importantly, do the research and don't interfere with the research. Because mm -hmm. when we interfere with the research, do your own research. You know, I mean, like people that are pushing, do your own research, because mm -hmm. when you become the patient, when you do your own research, you start seeing a different world. 
And that's when you become less, you know, marginalized, less on one side or the other. You start becoming more humble. And I, I spoke to someone from the NIH the other day, and she said to me, you know, honesty is so important in research. And I said, you know, humility is more important. Mm. Humility to know that we don't know it all and humility to know that we can make mistakes. If I made a mistake on my protocols, I will be the first one to say it because at the end of the day, it impacts me. It impacts my kids. No amount of money is going to save my life if I messed up and I have to sleep at night knowing that I did the right thing. So research needs to be done. Research cannot be interfered with. And when the data comes out, you do your own decision. You know, if it saved you and you're dying, then you know what? You know what to do. You, your gut tells you, gut feeling, your gut instinct. Mm. If you're healthy and you feel like, you know what? You survived so many flus and colds. You're going to be fine. Just keep at it. You know, yes. How many people have I seen this pandemic do nothing, nothing except take their vitamins, right? And eat, perf eat the same way. And they've not gotten COVID and they've not been vaccinated. Those people have a gold microbiome. Those are the resilient people. Those are the people yes. I want because those are the people that said, you know what? I'm not going to panic. Whatever will be, will be. I'm living day by day. And I'm going to survive because I trust on a higher power or not, or I trust in myself, right? Because mm -hmm. it's freedom of choice, who you believe, what you believe, what you do. Um, you know, at the end, it's all about that peace and calm to calm down our guts, to calm down our microbiome and to say, you know what, we're going to be fine. And that's Talk really the key. Dying. Yes. Thank you for saying that. That's really ultimately the keys we need to look inside, eat the right way take care of our bodies, take care of our mindset, because our mind will absolutely interfere. Chaos, it will interfere with all the microbiome that we have. And what are some of the things that you do see supporting the gut, uh, supporting the bifida? So I think balanced nutrition, diversified, a lot of fiber, diverse fiber, uh, products with vitamin D, you know, like your, you know, um, your, your, your salmon, you know, I like salmon that's caught in the deep ocean of Alaska, not necessarily salmon that's transported across the ocean and pot potentially froze and defroze. And that looks beautiful at on the shelves of a grocery store. Uh, because, you know, salmon is not like that. I, I prefer foods that are real foods. Um, in other words, strawberries that actually taste like strawberries. Although these days I'm not really a fan of berries or strawberries because I, I do feel that they're, they are sprayed and that they are more dangerous. And, you know, we've certainly seen a lot of bugs with strawberries and blueberries. Um, you know, I'm a fan of covered foods, pineapple. I'm a fan of quercetin from the foods, the green onions, the pineapple. Um, I'm a fan of bananas, you know, especially if you're, you know, one banana, one apple, you know, these and removing the skins, coconut, you know, avocados, um, those foods, I, you know, as far as, you know, vegan, vegetarian meat is really a, um, a personalized, right? Because some people are, should be vegan to change their microbiome. And some people should not, right? There are some things we get from the cow um, that are, you know, that are 
essential in my opinion, like, you know, the bovine immunoglobulins, for example, that come from the blood of the cow, you know, is, is an important thing. Um, so vitamin D, vitamin C, um, those are, those are things that I, you know, I support, um, exercise, nothing wrong with exercising, breathing the air, hiking, uh, yoga, meditation, laughter, seeing the light, decreasing stress, realizing that, you know, if I get into a fight with my spouse, am I killing my bifidobacteria? Should I really get, get into a fight with my spouse? Probably not. So, you know, decreasing your, your anxiety as much as possible, realizing that anxiety will increase your bad stuff and decrease your good stuff. And that data is coming, by the way, I'm, I'm writing the paper with Dr. Bistritsky, who's a top psychiatrist. We're looking at anxiety and the microbiome. So that data is coming. So, you know, there's a formula on microbes. Um, so I think that's, that's really what I do. And then, you know, trust in the knowledge, in the pursuit of knowledge and trust that if you open a door, um, it's to find answers and not a can of worm. You know, I think I'm more into opening doors to find light instead of opening cans and finding worms. So that's, that's my that's case. Beautiful. Thank you. And people can find you through your website, which is progenobiome, right? Progenobiome.com. Correct. Uh, can people send uh, work with your lab, for example, and send their stool samples for yes. testing? Okay. Yes. So they have to sign a consent. They have to participate in a clinical trial. Uh, the beauty of that is essentially uh, this is not your conventional clinical trial where you know patients are paid to participate. We are entering you know a relationship with the patients basically to understand, telling them, look, we don't know what we're seeing right now, which is really the right way to do it, in my opinion. And to say, as we discover things, you will discover with us. Um, and then the data will be more and more, you know, comprehend, more and more, you know, understandable, understand. Yes. Yeah. Do you, so, do you also do fecal transplants in your office? Is that, so or do I do fecal transplant for C. diff because C. diff is essentially was approved. Um, and I do it with, um, you know, following the guidelines by the FDA. Um, I do fecal transplant by IND, which is basically a protocol you submit through the portal of the FDA. Um, but unfortunately, so there's a bunch of protocols we've written that are submitted to the FDA. We are still working with the FDA and the agency. So that's why, you know, I'm in this, this boat in a way where I have to work with the agencies because they allow me to do the research. I don't want to be, look, I mean, the reality is I had a patient with metastatic mesothelioma that, you know, I could have just taught her what to do, et cetera. But I wanted the FDA to be holding my hand with the case and they approved it within 24 hours wow. because of the urgency of it and using the compassionate act, the right to try act. Uh, but it took a lot of work and a lot of paperwork to submit. And luckily I had a the daughter of this patient and her husband were both physicians. So they helped me with a lot of the papers. Unfortunately, when we submit these INDs, we become like a pharmaceutical product, right? It's the same as a drug, a new drug, because feces are considered drugs because they're microbes, right? So it mm -hmm. makes sense that you need an IND for it. Um, so putting that through the pipelines of the FDA is a challenge. 
once we get approved for autism, we will, and realize I said, once we get approved, because I am not quitting, I'm going to continue on this. I want to yeah. see my familial FMT coming out and I want to get as many doctors. Once we get approved, uh, we're going to get involved. A lot of the doctors that do fecal transplant to help these kids and to see if the protocol yeah. is helping. Now I'm going to fit. I'm going to tell you one thing, because one of the things that was brought up to me was the whole you know, placebo control trial with autism. My protocol is fecal transplant via colonoscopy, right? And it's familial fecal transplant. So, you know, feces from a sibling. Now I'm going to be working with Dr. Adams and I'm going to be working with uh, Dr. Alex Kurutz for their product because I believe it's not a one pill and some kids don't have family members that can donate. So that's when they need to go to the biome bank, to the, to the, um, the donors. Donors, so, yeah. tool banks to try to see if there's improvement or if they can help. Okay. Um, I think we need to see all that. The problem with placebo controlled trials, first of all, I would never put a kid through a colonoscopy and giving him a placebo. So that's out of the question. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to see the data. If a kid is not talking and all of a sudden he's starting to talk, there's your data. I don't need a placebo controlled trial. Let's stop that. Because what we've learned from COVID is that placebo controlled trials are flawed. Why are they flawed? If you do not know the bifidobacteria level of the patient at baseline, you're comparing an apple to an orange. In other words, you just gave a placebo to a guy with a million bifidobacteria who would have survived regardless of the placebo because he has his bifidobacteria as a million mm -hmm. copies, as opposed to giving a guy with zero bifidobacteria um, treatment and saying, oh, it didn't work. Look at that. He, he didn't survive, but my placebo survived. Therefore, the drug doesn't work. Wrong. You compared a guy with a million bifidobacteria to a guy that had zero. You're comparing an apple and an orange. Yeah. Stop that. So these placebo control trials, I've been doing them for too long. They are just there to help the product get to market because you can, you know, finagle the statistics. It's over. Disaster. That's an absolute disaster. Transplant, we need to start looking at precision medicine and precision medicine requires cures. Find a cure, understand the microbiome. Mm. The other thing is not all fecal transplants are e created equal, correct? Maybe correct. we can on that correct. briefly. Yeah. Because there is a factor, which is your colon, the receptors, right? And is it the right microbiome for you? Yes. So if we knew it all, we would have figured it out, but we don't. It's really about doing so genetic we, matching. Yeah. The, the world of the microbiome is 1% we know, 3% we don't know, and then 90, 96% or 97% of what we don't know, we don't know. We've mm -hmm. got to be humble to know we don't know a lot. Yes. You know, what is Dory? You know, when people come in at me with, with these placebo controlled trials, I say to them, what's Doria? What does it do in the microbiome? What's Blatia? Do we know? Do we know what Blatia? Do we know what Bacteroides vulgatus does? Do you? No, they have no idea. They've never, Alistapis fine goldie. Do you know what that is? Do you know what it does? Do you know what you've seen it in? What disease is it in? Is it in Alzheimer's perhaps? Autism, Parkinson's, Crohn's? And is it in an Indian person versus a Chinese versus a Mediterranean? Mm -hmm. You don't know. So if you don't know all these questions, don't talk to me about placebo control trial and tell me that your 
idea, your hypothesis is the answer because it's not. Because in the world of microbes, there's trillions of microbes we don't even have names for. So we need to be humble to say, you know what? We don't know, okay? We don't. It's not one bacteria, one antibiotic. It's one antibiotic killed the bacteria, but also killed 20,000 or a trillion other bacteria. So in other words, we didn't know, right? We didn't know that the foundation of microbiology of one microbe killed by an antibiotic could cause multiple problems down the road because we didn't know that a microbe was not an island that just stays by itself. A microbe is intertwined with other microbes. And in a world of COVID-19 hitting humanity, we've got to be humble to say, we don't know. We could be right. It could be the vaccine could be the answer. It could be this treatment could be mm -hmm. the answer. We don't know. The fact is we're still in a pandemic, even though they say we're not in a pandemic, COVID is still around. COVID is transforming itself to Omicron, to other things. Other viruses are coming out. Other bacteria are coming out. Pandora's box is open. The gap is open. The colon, the colon is dysbiotic. Completely. And it's getting That's worse by the, by the day. And, and the big thing and why I stay up at night and why I've become a hurricane is if we mess up, we have just finished humanity. Humanity cannot survive with one race or one human. Humanity needs other humans. Think about it. You cannot survive at, at your job doing what you're doing if you don't have a farmer that's picking fruits for you to have on your table. Mm -hmm. You cannot survive if somebody's not checking the electricity for you to be able to talk on the computer, right? I mean, everybody has a job and we're all part of this huge ecosystem of microbes that are all doing their job as well. Stop the killing. Stop the killing of bifidobacteria. I've told you bifidobacteria decomposes plastic. Maybe that's our problem with the bifido, with the plastic. We got to stop the killing, start understanding. What did we do with C. diff? We kept killing C. diff for 20 years. I tried to mm -hmm. kill C. diff only to realize that the only way to suppress C. diff was to give it more bugs to suppress it, to suffocate it. So stop the killing, bring in the love, because that's what it's all about. All these microbes suffocating that microbe and so that he's not, and I say he, uh, it could be a she, but that microbe is not, a, is not alone. And by the way, that's the beauty of the microbiome world is there's no such thing as like men, women, you know, bacteria. There's no such thing as like religious bacteria. You know, bacteria is just bacteria. And at the end, those microbes are going to take over your bodies. So focus on them, understand them, calm down your gut, stop the hate and bring in the love and, and peace. Because ultimately, that's the only way the planet has survived. We have had a virus. The message of this virus was to bring humanity together. Instead, it divided humanity. What a shame. What a shame. If Martians came from Mars, humanity would have joined forces to fight the Martians because that's the enemy. But now a common a virus that everybody suffered from that took years of people's lives and we haven't come together. That's a shame. Yes. It's such a beautiful message that, you know, everything is connected and it is through this deepest connection first of understanding who we are by understanding yes. our gut 
our microbes and understanding that they are living and in order for them to survive and be beneficial and harmonious with who we are as individuals, right? We have to come together as human species because yes. we're really part of the same thing. And 100%. what a beautiful message. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Looking forward to all your new research that's coming out. Perfect. I'll keep you posted on this. Yes. Thank you all so right. much. Thank you.